You're listening to Mysterious Mountains, a production of the West Virginia Humanities Council, where together we explore the imaginary landscape of West Virginia through genre fiction and folklore. You know, a lot of times when you have these vigilante groups, there's destruction that happens in order to get that um, result. And so those consequences could lead to criminal charges because if you are breaking a law, no matter what you're trying to achieve, there are consequences to those actions. That's Dr. Leanne Davidson, chair of the Criminal Justice Department at West Virginia State University. She's here today to talk about vigilantes, criminal justice, and a little bit of why our legal system works the way it does. But first, the mystery. West Virginia Humanities Council presents Uncle Abner, Master of Mysteries by Melville Davison Post A Twilight Adventure Read by Eric Wagoner It was a strange scene that we approached. Before a crossroad leading into a grove of beech trees, a man sat on his horse with a rifle across his saddle. He did not speak until we were before him in the road, and then his words were sinister. Ride on, he said. But my Uncle Abner did not ride on. He pulled up his big chestnut and looked calmly at the man. You speak like one having authority, he said. The man answered with an oath. Ride on, or you'll get into trouble. I am accustomed to trouble, replied my uncle with great composure. You must give me a better reason. I'll give you hell, growled the man. Ride on. Abner's eyes traveled over the speaker with a deliberate scrutiny. It is not yours to give, he said, although possibly to receive. Are the roads of Virginia held by arms? This one is, replied the man. I think not, replied my uncle Abner, and, touching his horse with his heel, he turned into the crossroad. The man seized his weapon, and I heard the hammer click under his thumb. Abner must have heard it too, but he did not turn his broad back. He only called to me in his usual matter-of-fact voice. Go on, Martin. I will overtake you. The man brought his gun up to his middle, but he did not shoot. He was like all those who undertake to command obedience without having first determined precisely what they will do if their orders are disregarded. He was prepared to threaten with desperate words, but not to support that threat with a desperate act, and he hung there, uncertain, cursing under his breath. I would have gone on as my uncle had told me to do, but now the man came to a decision. No, by God, he said. If he goes in, you go in too. And he seized my bridle and turned my horse into the crossroad. Then he followed. There is a long twilight in these hills. The sun departs, but the day remains. A sort of weird, dim, elfin day that dawns at sunset and envelops and possesses the world. The land is full of light, but it is the light of no heavenly sun. It is a light equal everywhere, as though the earth strove to illumine itself, and succeeded with that labor. The stars are not yet out. Now and then a pale moon rides in the sky, but it has no power, 
and the light is not from it. The wind is usually gone. The air is soft, and the fragrance of the fields fills it like a perfume. The noises of the day and of the creatures that go about by day cease, and the noises of the night and of the creatures that haunt the night begin. The bat swoops and circles in the maddest action, but without a sound. The eye sees him, but the ear hears nothing. The whippoorwill begins his plaintive cry, and one hears, but does not see. It is a world that we do not understand, for we are creatures of the sun, and we are fearful lest we come upon things at work here of which we have no experience, and that may be able to justify themselves against our reason. And so a man falls into silence when he travels in this twilight, and he looks and listens with his senses out on guard. It was an old wagon road that we entered, with the grass growing between the ruts. The horses traveled without a sound, until we began to enter a grove of ancient beech trees. Then the dead leaves crackled and rustled. Abner did not look behind him, and so he did not know that I came. He knew that someone followed, but he doubtless took it for the sentinel in the road, and I did not speak. The man with the cocked gun rode grimly behind me. I did not know whither we went, or to what end. We might be shot down from behind a tree or murdered in our saddles. It was not a land where men took desperate measures upon a triviality, and I knew that Abner rode into something that little men, lacking courage, would gladly have stayed out of. Presently my ear caught a sound, or, rather, a confused mingling of sounds, as of men digging in the earth. It was faint, and some distance beyond us in the heart of the beech woods. But as we traveled the sound increased, and I could distinguish the strokes of the mattock and the thrust of the shovel and the clatter of the earth on the dry leaves. These sounds seemed at first to be before us, and then, a little later, off on our right hand. And finally, through the gray boles of the beech tree in the lowland, I saw two men at work, digging a pit. They had just begun their work, for there was little earth thrown out. But there was a great heap of leaves that they had cleared away, and heavy cakes of the baked crust that the mattocks had pried up. The length of the pit lay at right angles to the road, and the men were working with their backs toward us. They were in their shirts and trousers, and the heavy mottled shadows thrown by the beech limbs hovered on their backs and shoulders like a flock of night birds. The earth was baked and hard, the mattock rang on it, and among the noises of their work they did not hear us. I saw Abner look off at this strange labor, his head half-turned, but he did not stop, and we went on. The old wagon road made a turn into the low ground. I heard the sound of horses, and a moment later we came upon a dozen men. I shall not easily forget that scene. The beech trees had been deadened by some settler who had chopped a ring around them, and they stood, gaunt, with a few tattered leaves, letting the weird twilight in. Some of the men stood about, others sat on the fallen trees, and others in their saddles. But upon every man of that grim company there was the air and aspect of one who waits for something to be finished. An old man with a heavy iron-gray beard smoked a pipe, puffing out great mouthfuls of smoke with a sort of deliberate energy. Another whittled a stick, cutting a bull with horns, and shaping his work with the nicest care and still another traced letters on the pommel of his saddle with his thumbnail. A little to one side a great pronged beech thrust out a gray arm, and under it two men sat on their horses, their elbows strapped to their bodies, and their mouths gagged with a saddle cloth. And behind them a man in his saddle was working with a colt halter, 
unraveling the twine that bound the headpiece and seeking thereby to get a greater length of rope. This was the scene when I caught it first, but a moment later, when my uncle rode into it, the thing burst into furious life. Men sprang up, caught his horse by the bit, and covered him with weapons. Someone called for the sentinel who rode behind me, and he galloped up. For a moment there was confusion. Then the big man who had smoked with such deliberation called out my uncle's name. Others repeated it, and the panic was gone. But a ring of stern, determined faces were around him and before his horse, and with the passing of the flash of action there passed no whit of the grim purpose upon which these men were set. My uncle looked about him. Lemuel Arnold, he said. Nicholas Vance. Hiram Ward, you here. As my uncle named these men, I knew them. They were cattle grazers. Ward was the big man with the pipe. The men with them were their renters and drovers. Their lands lay nearest to the mountains. The geographical position made for feudal customs and a certain independence of action. They were on the border, they were accustomed to say, and had to take care of themselves. And it ought to be written that they did take care of themselves with courage and decision. And on occasion they also took care of Virginia. Their fathers had pushed the frontier of the Dominion northward and westward, and had held the land. They had fought the savage single-handedly and desperately, by his own methods and with his own weapons. Ruthless and merciless, eye for eye and tooth for tooth, they returned what they were given. They did not send to Virginia for militia when the savage came. They fought him at their doors, and followed him through the forest, and took their toll of death. They were hardier than he was, and their hands were heavier and bloodier, until the old men in the tribes of the Ohio Valley forbade these raids because they cost too much, and turned the war parties south into Kentucky. Certain historians have written severely of these men and their ruthless methods, and prattled of humane warfare, but they wrote nursing their soft spines in the security of a civilization which these men's hands had builded, and their words are hollow. Abner, said Ward, let me speak plainly. We have got an account to settle with a couple of cattle thieves, and we are not going to be interfered with. Cattle stealing and murder have got to stop in these hills. We've had enough of it. Well, replied my uncle, I am the last man in Virginia to interfere with that. We have all had enough of it, and we are all determined that it must cease. But how do you propose to end it? With a rope, said Ward. It is a good way, replied Abner, when it is done the right way. What do you mean by the right way? said Ward. I mean, answered my uncle, that we have all agreed to a way, and we ought to stick to our agreement. Now, I want to help you to put down cattle stealing and murder, but I want also to keep my word. And how have you given your word? In the same way that you have given yours, said Abner, and as every man here has given his. Our fathers found out that they could not manage the assassin and the thief when every man undertook to act for himself, so they got together and agreed upon a certain way to do these things. Now we have endorsed what they agreed to, and promised to obey it, and I, for one, would like to keep my promise. The big man's face was puzzled. Now it cleared. Hell, he said, you mean the law? Call it what you like, replied Abner. It is merely the agreement of everybody to do certain things in a certain way. The man made a decisive gesture with a jerk of his head. Well, he said, we're going to do this thing our own way. My uncle's face became thoughtful. Then, he said, you will injure some innocent people. You mean these two blacklegs? 
and Ward indicated the prisoners with a gesture of his thumb. My uncle lifted his face and looked at the two men some distance away beneath the great beach, as though he had but now observed them. I was not thinking of them, he answered. I was thinking that if men like you and Lemuel Arnold and Nicholas Vance violate the law, lesser men will follow your example, and as you justify your act for security, they will justify theirs for revenge and plunder. And so the law will go to pieces, and a lot of weak and innocent people who depend upon it for security will be left unprotected. These were words that I have remembered, because they put the danger of lynch law in a light I had not thought of. But I saw that they would not move these determined men. Their blood was up, and they received them coldly. Abner, said Ward, we are not going to argue this thing with you. There are times when men have to take the law into their own hands. We live here, at the foot of the mountains. Our cattle are stolen and run across the border into Maryland. We are tired of it, and we intend to stop it. Our lives and our property are menaced by a set of reckless, desperate devils that we have determined to hunt down and hang to the first tree in sight. Now, we did not sin for you. You pushed your way in here. And now, if you are afraid of breaking the law, you can ride on, because we are going to break it, if to hang a pair of murderous devils is to break it. I was astonished at my uncle's decision. Well, he said, if the law must be broken, I will stay and help you break it. Very well, replied Ward, but don't get a wrong notion in your head, Abner. If you choose to stay, you put yourself on a footing with everybody else. And that is precisely what I want to do, replied Abner. But as matters stand now, every man here has an advantage over me. What advantage, Abner? said Ward. The advantage, answered my uncle, that he has heard all the evidence against your prisoners, and is convinced that they are guilty. If that is all the advantage, Abner, replied Ward, you shall not be denied it. There's been so much cattle stealing here of late that our people living on the border finally got together and determined to stop every drove going up into the mountains that wasn't accompanied by somebody that we knew was all right. Now, this afternoon, one of my men reported a little bunch of about a hundred steers on the road, and I stopped it. These two men were driving the cattle. I inquired if the cattle belonged to them, and they replied that they were not the owners, but that they had been hired to take the drove over into Maryland. I did not know the men, and as they met my inquiries with oaths and imprecations, I was suspicious of them. I demanded the name of the owner who had hired them to drive the cattle. They said it was none of my damn business, and went on. I raised the county. We overtook them, turned their cattle into a field, and brought them back until we could find out who the drove belonged to. And on the road, we met Bowers. He turned and indicated the man who was working with the rope halter. I knew the man. He was a cattle shipper, somewhat involved in debt, but who managed to buy and sell and somehow keep his head above water. He told us the truth. Yesterday evening he had gone over on the Stone Cold to look at Daniel Koopman's cattle. He had heard that some grazer from your county, Abner, was on the way up to buy the cattle for stockers. He wanted to get in ahead of your man, so he left home that evening and got to Koopman's place about sundown. He took a short cut on foot over the hill, and when he came out, he saw a man on the opposite ridge where the road runs right away. The man seemed to have been sitting on his horse looking down into the little valley where Koopman's house stands. Bowers went down to the house, but Koopman was not there. The door was open, 
and Bauer says the house looked as though Koopman had just gone out of it and might come back any moment. There was no one about because Koopman's wife had gone on a visit to her daughter over the mountains, and the old man was alone. Bowers thought Koopman was out showing the cattle to the man whom he had just seen ride off, so he went out to the pasture field to look for him. He could not find him, and he could not find the cattle. He came back to the house to wait until Koopman should come in. He sat down on the porch. As he sat there, he noticed that the porch had been scrubbed and was still wet. He looked at it and saw that it had been scrubbed only at one place, before the door. This seemed to him a little peculiar, and he wondered why Koopman had scrubbed his porch only in one place. He got up, and as he went toward the door, he saw that the jamb of the door was splintered at a point about halfway up. He examined this splintered place, and presently discovered that it was a bullet hole. This alarmed him, and he went out into the yard. There he saw a wagon track leading away from the house toward the road. In the weeds, he found Koopman's watch. He picked it up and put it into his pocket. It was a big silver watch with Koopman's name on it, and attached to it was a buckskin string. He followed the track to the gate where it entered the road. He discovered then that the cattle had also passed through this gate. It was now night. Bowers went back, got Koopman's saddle horse out of the stable, rode him home, and followed the track of the cattle this morning. But he saw no trace of the drove until we met him. What did Shiflet and Twiggs say to this story? inquired Abner. They did not hear it, answered Ward. Bowers did not talk before them. He rode aside with us when we met him. Did Shiflet and Twiggs know Bowers? said Abner. I don't know, replied Ward. Their talk was so foul when we stopped the drove that we had to tie their mouths up. Is that all? said Abner. Ward swore a great oath. No, he said. Do you think we would hang men on that? From what Bowers told us, we thought Shiflet and Twiggs had killed Daniel Koopman and driven off his cattle, but we wanted to be certain of it. So we set out to discover what they had done with Koopman's body after they had killed him, and what they had done with the wagon. We followed the trail of the drove down to the Valley River. No wagon had crossed, but on the other side we found that a wagon and drove of cattle had turned out of the road and gone along the basin of the river for about a mile through the woods. And there, in a bend of the river, we found where these devils had camped. There had been a great fire of logs very near to the river, but none of the ashes of this fire remained. From a circular space some twelve feet in diameter, the ashes had all been shoveled off, the marks of the shovels being distinct. In the center of the place where this fire had burned, the ground had been scraped clean, but near the edges there were some traces of cinders, and the ground was blackened. In the river at this point, just opposite the remains of the fire, was a natural washout, or hole. We made a raft of logs, cut a pole with a fork on the end, and dragged the river. We found most of the wagon iron, all showing the effect of fire. Then we fastened a tin bucket to a pole and fished the washout. We brought up cinders, buttons, buckles, and pieces of bone. Ward paused. That settled it, and we came back here to swing the devils up. My uncle had listened very carefully, and now he spoke. What did the man pay Twiggs and Shiflet? said my uncle. Did they tell you that when you stopped the drove? Now that, answered Ward, was another piece of damning evidence. When we searched the men, we found a pocketbook on Shiflet with a hundred and fifteen dollars and some odd cents. It was Daniel Koopman's pocketbook, 
because there was an old tax receipt in it that had slipped down between the leather and the lining. So we asked Shiflet where he had got it, and he said the $15 in the change was his own money and that the hundred had been paid to him by the man who had hired them to drive the cattle. He explained his possession of the pocketbook by saying that this man had the money in it, and when he went to pay them, he said that they might just as well take it, too. Who was this man? said Abner. Well, they will not tell who he was. Why not? Now, Abner, cried Ward, why not indeed? Because there never was any such man. The story is a lie out of the whole cloth. Those two devils are guilty as hell. The proof is all dead against them. Well, replied my uncle, what circumstantial evidence proves depends a good deal on how you get started. It is a somewhat dangerous road to the truth, because all the signboards have a curious trick of pointing in the direction that you are going. Now, a man will never realize this unless he turns around and starts back. Then he will see, to his amazement, that the signboards have also turned but as long as his face is set one certain way, it is of no use to talk to him. He won't listen to you. And if he sees you going the other way, he will call you a fool. There's only one way in this case, said Ward. There are always two ways in every case, replied Abner, that the suspected person is either guilty or innocent. You have started upon the theory that Shiflet and Twigs are guilty. Now, suppose you had started the other way. What then? Well, said Ward, what then? This then, continued Abner. You stop Shiflet and Twigs on the road with Daniel Koopman's cattle, and they tell you that a man has hired them to drive this drove into Maryland. You believe that and start out to find the man. You find Bowers. Bowers went deadly white. For God's sake, Abner, he said. But my uncle was merciless, and he drove in the conclusion. What then? There was no answer, but the faces of the men about my uncle turned toward the man whose trembling hands fingered the rope that he was preparing for another. But the things we found, Abner, said Ward. What do they prove, continued my uncle, now that the signboards are turned? That somebody killed Daniel Koopman and drove off his cattle and afterward destroyed the body and the wagon in which it was hauled away. But who did that? The men who were driving Daniel Koopman's cattle? Or the man who was riding Daniel Koopman's horse and carrying Daniel Koopman's watch in his pocket? Ward's face was a study in expression. Ah, cried Abner, remember that the signboards have turned about. And what do they point to if we read them on the way we are going now? The man who killed Koopman was afraid to be found with the cattle, so he hired Twigs and Shiflet to drive them into Maryland for him and follows on another road. But his story, Abner, said Ward. And what of it? replied my uncle. He is taken, and he must explain how he comes by the horse that he rides and the watch that he carries, and he must find the criminal. Well, he tells you a tale to fit the facts that you will find when you go back to look, and he gives you shiflet and twigs to hang. I never saw a man in more mortal terror than Jacob Bowers. He sat in his saddle like a man bewildered. My God, he said, and again he repeated it, and again. And he had cause for that terror on him. My uncle was stern and ruthless. The pendulum had swung the other way, and the lawless monster that Bowers had allied was now turning on himself. He saw it, and his joints were unhinged with fear. 
A voice crashed out of the ring of desperate men, uttering the changed opinion. By God, it cried, we've got the right man now. And one caught the rope out of Bower's hand. But my Uncle Abner rode in on them. Are you sure about that? he said. Sure, they echoed. You have shown it yourself, Abner. No, replied my uncle, I have not shown it. I have shown merely whither circumstantial evidence leads us when we go hotfoot after a theory. Bowers says that there was a man on the hill above Daniel Koopman's house, and this man will know that he did not kill Daniel Koopman and that his story is the truth. They laughed in my uncle's face. Do you believe there was any such person? My uncle seemed to increase in stature, and his voice became big and dominant. I do, he said, because I am the man. They had got their lesson, and we rode out with shiflet and twigs to a legal trial. For me, A Twilight Adventure is one of the most unforgettable Uncle Abner mysteries, perhaps in part because Abner's courage is most prominently on display in this tale. He is willing to confront at his own peril a band of armed and angry vigilantes, men determined to avenge themselves in the name of justice and property. And not only does Abner protect the lives of two innocent men, he leads both the vigilantes and the audience through a vivid illustration of why vigilantism is such a zero-sum game. If men like you, he says, violate the law, lesser men will follow your example. And as you justify your act for security, they will justify theirs for revenge and plunder. And so the law will go to pieces, and a lot of weak and innocent people who depend upon it for security will be left unprotected. My guest today is Dr. Leanne Davidson, chair of the Criminal Justice Department at West Virginia State University in the town of Institute, where she has taught for the last seven years. She was a paralegal for 15 years, then went into research and frequently taught employees of the state correctional system and those of other treatment programs for incarcerees. Dr. Davidson and I spoke in January, just a couple of weeks after the disturbing events at the United States Capitol on January 6, 2021, when a large mob violently forced its way past the Capitol Police and into the halls of Congress to protest the results of the 2020 presidential election. While Dr. Davidson and I don't discuss the politics of these events, the events themselves did naturally influence our conversation about what can happen when a group of citizens circumvents the due processes of law. Our interview was also unique in that a number of her faculty colleagues were represented by proxy. We all read the story and we all just wanted to provide input. Dr. Walter Stroop is a former West Virginia State Police officer and, and he still teaches at the West Virginia State Police Academy. Another one of my colleagues is Professor Mark Odessa and Mr. Odessa has been at West Virginia State University in our criminal justice department 
for about 42 years. So he is very dedicated to the criminal justice field. He's been involved in a lot of the trends and a lot of policy changes. One of my other colleagues is Professor William White. Professor White was a former warden and director of the Department of Corrections in West Virginia. So he has a lot of knowledge in corrections and private security. And then Dr. Cassandra White, she has psychology background, and she worked for a number of years as a correctional counselor, psychologist. It is a very broad field. Well, before we dive into the story, I'd love to hear a little bit more just about the field of criminal justice itself. What all does that encompass? How long has it really been a, a serious field of study at the university level and so on? It hit the United States probably in the 1920s, like following Prohibition, we started to see a lot more crime increase, especially with organized crime and things like that. So we started to create criminal justice agencies, but we really started to get involved in research during the 70s and 80s, and even more so today. We are actually starting today to involve other disciplines in our research because what we are learning is once we apply psychology, sociology, biology, even some anthropology, once we take all of those things and we kind of put them in a bowl, we are starting to see criminal behavior a little more clearer. It's really one of those things that while it's been around for a long time, it's always evolving. But the main components of the criminal justice field are corrections, courts, and law enforcement. We all work together. They work very closely with the executive branch, the judicial branch, and the legislatures because once the laws are created, then our law enforcement has to actually make sure those laws are carried out. If they're not, then they have to make arrests, which are then put through the court systems. And then once the court systems actually go through and make their conviction or however the case ends, then it goes into the corrections. And we all have to know a little bit about each of the fields so that we can work together and create a better understanding of the system and how it works. So in our program, all of our students have to take basic courses in corrections, law enforcement, as well as the courts so that they understand the process because you can do so much with that degree. So we, we like to give our students a well-rounded educational background and foundation in all those areas. What are some of the other occupations that it would be ideal to have a criminal justice degree? Law enforcement is a, a big one. And a lot of times, um, even like when I first went into criminal justice, most people would ask me, are you a cop? As soon as you say you have a criminal justice degree, because they really don't think about the broad range. I mean, I was a paralegal, but it came in handy when I worked for assistant prosecutors or worked for a defense attorney and things like that, because I understood the process of the system. So paralegal is one that individuals could use a criminal justice degree. Correctional officers, correctional counselors, case managers, so all of those individuals who work in the correction field, wardens, administrators, to take it one step further when you're looking at probation officers, parole officers. We have individuals who work with private agencies who are like the supervisors when an individual can only see their children on supervised visitation. So some of our students are the supervisors for those roles. We have students who work in asset protection for a number of different corporations. 
We have students who work in intelligence. They work in for FBI, social media companies, insurance adjusters. A lot of those will have criminal justice degrees. I tell the students all the time, like, just think of a, a place you would like to work, and I'm sure we could find a CJ job that you could actually do. Taking a look at the story, A Twilight Adventure, it's the only story in which Uncle Abner confronts what could perhaps be called a lynch mob. This is a group of people trying to exercise their own form of vigilante justice outside of the courts. Oxford Dictionary defines a vigilante as a member of a self-appointed group of citizens who undertake law enforcement in their community without legal authority, typically because the legal agencies are thought to be inadequate. Are there any examples of, any prominent examples of major vigilante activity, very serious issues that the state has had to address historically? It depends on when you're looking at research, like how things are defined and who wrote the papers and things like that. But we used to have the moonshiners here in West Virginia. So a lot of them would would serve their own justice, the KKK, those types of um, hate groups, hate crimes. Not all vigilantes are like Batman where they help everybody. That's where a lot of people kind of get skewed with the term vigilante and comic book vigilantes because most comic book vigilantes are seen as positive, helping the good of all mankind or all society, ridding society of all the bad people. But in the criminal justice world, we have to look at things from a broader perspective instead of just putting everybody in a, in one box. What are some of the consequences or problems presented to society as a whole when vigilante activities are pursued? I keep re- referencing Batman because it's just one of those comic books that I'm familiar with. But if you have an individual like Batman who is taking down the bad guys or something, then there's a lot of destruction. There's a lot of damage. There's a lot of things that happen along the way before, you know, everybody's safe from the Joker or whatever. So, you know, a lot of times when you have these vigilante groups, there's destruction that happens in order to get that um, result. And so those consequences could lead to criminal charges because if you are breaking a law, no matter what you're trying to achieve, there are consequences to those actions. Obviously, without getting into the politics of it, we have a situation, the situation at the Capitol earlier this month. There are definitely going to be people who undertook those kinds of actions, who have undertaken them and perhaps will in the future, who are going to say that the ends justify the means. Certainly, that's the attitude of Batman, that this this is what you have to do. And it doesn't matter if the law isn't equipped to handle that then we will. Does the criminal justice field just say, well, the law is the law, or grapple with that kind of philosophical divide? What does the criminal justice system, how it's taught, say to people that say, the law is not doing what I need it to do, so I'm going to do it myself? One of the things that we do go over in the classrooms is there's really no black and white in criminal justice. You know, every law is interpreted differently by everyone. That's why you have multiple judges who sit on panels, because if we just went with one judge's opinion, the results for a lot of appeals would be different. That's why you have a lot of judges when they make their opinion, they may have three, four and two against. So that's why when we go over things with our students, we talk about discretion. If I'm speeding down the road and I get pulled over by a police officer, they have discretion on whether or not to write me a warning or write me a ticket. If I've been pulled over and warned a number of times by the same officer, or if I've had a number of speeding tickets on my record, there's a number of things that come into play 
with how they respond, whether or not they want to write a ticket. So the same things kind of happen in courts. A prosecutor has the discretion of whether or not they feel that there's enough evidence to bring charges against someone. A judge has a discretion on whether or not they feel that they want to be more lenient on a first-time offender with a sentence. A lot of people do get to the point to where they'd say, the system failed me and I don't feel like my outcome was fair to me or that I've received any type of justice from what happened. You try to figure out why they feel the way they feel from a research point of view because you want to make sure that everybody feels that they have some form of justice. From my point of view and from just from my perspective, I just try to have faith in the system. Does the system work every time? No. Does the system need to be tweaked a little bit? Absolutely. But for the most part, the system does what it's supposed to do. It is supposed to help individuals that if they are victimized, that there is somewhere they can go to feel like what they went through was not for nothing. I think you brought up an interesting point when you mentioned that a lot of times for many, many kinds of decisions, there are panels of judges, groups of people. It's rarely one person who is sitting there passing judgment on a situation. This applies to both the panel of judges, or you could also say that that applies to juries. You have the trial by a jury of your peers, which is an essential part of the American judicial system. There's an element of democracy built into that very system by saying, well, one person's judgment is not going to render this fair enough of the time. So it has to be a group of people and we're going to abide by the majority decision, which of course is the, the basic tenet of democracy is when, when over 50% yes. of people vote for something, then we say, okay, that's what we're going to do. The Supreme Court works like that, the Court of Appeals, which kind of leads into my next question. We make quite a fuss in the United States about this receiving a fair trial. I found myself asking, you know, this is something I take very much for granted, this idea of a fair trial, and it's something we get mad about when it seems like that's not what happened. What exactly does that mean, a fair trial? Where does the idea originate, and what makes it important to American democracy and judicial process? A fair trial, it's basically, it offers you the constitutional right for due process or all of the rights, like right to an attorney, right to plead the fifth. So that your constitutional rights, speedy trial, they can't like arrest you and then just leave you sit in prison for 15 years before your trial comes up. A fair trial is just basically, it offers the constitutional due process to all defendants. Everybody has a right to an attorney. If you cannot afford one, then they give you a public defender. In our field, the ones that we deal with a lot are the Fourth Amendment, which is your search and seizure, like having a warrant, all those types of things. The Fifth Amendment, which means you don't want to self-incriminate. Sixth Amendment allows you to have an attorney. Of course, the Eighth Amendment is the cruel and unusual punishment. A fair trial just basically gives you the right to your constitutional rights to every defendant that is um, you know, arrested or convicted through the process. Why are these things important? We have our constitution. It seems like a lot of the things in this constitution were devised in order to protect the rights of the individual. How does the criminal justice field consider that important to the maintenance of that system? Why is it important to make sure that the individual has those rights? Our founding fathers thought that those were important things to ensure that everybody was treated equally and had a right to a fair trial. 
if you did not have those rights and you didn't have the money for an attorney and you were arrested, then you would be in a courtroom without a law degree trying to defend yourself for a crime that you may or may not have committed. So without that constitutional right, then that's one of the things that kind of does give you that fair treatment. The right to a speedy trial. If you knew the judge, you might be in and out in a week. If you didn't know the judge and you nobody really knew who you were or you were from out of town and committed a crime in another town, you could be in a prison for years before you ever were arraigned or ever even knew what your charges were. We were given these constitutional rights to make man more equal, man and women more equal, but it's the criminal justice's job to ensure that those rights are followed. And that is one of the reasons why we, we even have the Miranda rights, which was Miranda versus Arizona, that occurred in 1966, because individuals before then may not have known that they had those constitutional rights. So that is one of the reasons why every police officer has to read. Um, they have to read them their Miranda rights to let every person know what their rights are prior to even being arrested so that when they are taken into custody and they're questioned, they know they have a right to an attorney. That way it can make it more fair and you don't get those confessions under duress and things like that. So that's one of the things, even in our system, things change because we are trying to make sure that individuals know what their rights are before they're taken into custody. It's certainly hard to imagine the world of cop shows before 1966 when cops would arrest somebody and not say, you have the right to remain silent, you have the right to an attorney. And you think, I mean, 1966 wasn't that long ago. Everything that happened before then, if people didn't realize what their rights were, they may have been arrested without having known that they could ask for a public defender before they were interviewed by the police. And, and we do see those things in criminal justice even changing now. We are making sure that individuals know their rights all the way through the system, even with like public defenders. Once the public defender's there, then they can go into more details about what they what the police can ask and what they have to answer and what they don't have to answer. So there's a number of factors for everyone to have that fair trial, according to the way the Constitution laid it out. Taking a look at this Miranda versus Arizona, to return to the earlier question about kind of what are, what are the problems, what are the threats to American democracy when people in, engage in acts of vigilante activity, it seems like that this system of laws over the last couple of centuries, it is an evolving attempt to protect the rights of individuals. If there are people engaging in vigilante acts, then that's not guaranteed at all. Then it's, it's up to the whim of the vigilante what rights you get. That person's not going to read you your rights. When you have these vigilante people, the constitutional rights kind of go away. You're not protected. A vigilante feels that you've wronged them, no matter how much you try to say that you haven't or that you didn't do anything, they're going to take it upon themselves possibly to go at you anyway, because they feel or they have some type of evidence or something that makes them feel that you are guilty. It does take the responsibilities and the rights away from the individual that's being victimized at that time. Which, of course, is exactly what happens in the Uncle Abner story. You have a guy who's about to be hung at the whim of some guys who have made up their minds that they've caught the guy they want. They already have an outcome in mind. It goes against another tenet of judicial process, fair trials by jury where you're innocent until proven guilty based on whatever evidence they have. They think they have the answer and they're going to 
sort of be judge and jury at the same time. They often don't have the entire picture, which is what happens in this story, this case of circumstantial evidence, which Abner speaks powerfully on that subject, which he says is to sort of paraphrase, a sign that points whichever direction you're already traveling, which I love the way he phrases that. <laughs> is there an official definition within your field of of what circumstantial evidence is? There's not necessarily in West Virginia like a definition, so to speak, of circumstantial evidence other than a type of evidence that can be used that's not direct. Direct evidence would be a weapon, um, DNA, ballistics, you know, all those different things. Circumstantial evidence would be if there was a murder in a parking lot and I'm holding a gun and you see me shoot the gun and it hits somebody, that that's direct evidence. But if you hear a shot and then you run into that parking lot and I'm standing over the body with no weapon, that would be circumstantial evidence. There's nothing that actually directly links me to the crime, but based on circumstances that could lead a jury to believe I could have been the one that committed the crime. Any element of the circumstance that can be used to implicate one way or the other, but it ultimately doesn't directly prove anything. Like the charges that are brought against this gentleman who's going to be hung in the story, he has all the right tags on him for where he supposedly was and where he was going, etc. But ultimately, none of that was direct proof that he had done what these gentlemen say he was doing. Correct. A lot of times it's just the circumstances of the case, being in the parking lot when the shot happened, wearing the same color shirt as the person who actually fired the, the gun, all of those would be circumstantial things. So I did pull up like a juror instruction because I thought it might help. A lot of times when you are dealing with a jury, you have individuals who have never worked in this field, have never really been a part of this field other than seeing things on TV. So they like to give them instructions on how to look at things. And one of the things that they tell them is, if you have heard the terms direct evidence or circumstantial evidence, direct evidence is generally the testimony of a person who claims to have actual and direct knowledge of a fact, like an eyewitness testimony, like gunpowder on that person's hand that the state police lab person can identify, the DNA for that person, those types of things that would link that person to the crime. And then circumstantial evidence would just be anything else that's not directly linked to the crime. But it, they also tell them that the law makes no distinction between the two other than, like, if you believe that person did it beyond a reasonable doubt, whether it's circumstantial or direct evidence, then, you know, that person's guilty of the crime. I'm fascinated by that. It's a little bit of an aside, but because Melville Davison Post was a lawyer himself, and especially his early stories, the Randolph Mason stories, with that character was a lawyer, were often used to criticize points of law. He usually exploited real loopholes in existing laws at the time to show how a crime could be committed and gotten away with. And I have to wonder whether the fact that he mentions circumstantial evidence in a couple of different Abner stories, I wonder if that's sort of a way of criticizing the way that circumstantial evidence is handled in courts, because from what you're saying, the justice system doesn't treat it any differently than direct evidence at the end of the day. If there is a murder trial, it's the same form of beyond a reasonable doubt that the evidence has to be weighed, no matter if it's direct or circumstantial. So yeah, I mean, that is definitely a loophole. And we've seen it play out. We're seeing it play out now. We have organizations like the Innocence Project now 
that are freeing individuals who have been incarcerated for 20 years or more for crimes that they did not commit. And now the direct evidence, which is DNA evidence, is actually freeing those individuals. And those individuals were actually convicted based on circumstantial evidence. In the 70s, you didn't have DNA processes that you could go through. You didn't have all the technology that we have today to actually run those tests and solve crimes a little easier and actually have that direct evidence linked to the perpetrator or the person that they think is a suspect. Once upon a time, it seems like it would have been very possible for a very good attorney, a real whiz-bang showman lawyer, to build a seemingly solid case out of relatively circumstantial evidence and convince a jury because certain forms of direct evidence were just not available. Would you say that now it is more difficult to pull that off because of new technology, like the amount of video evidence that's generally out there now? Yes and no. Um, And my reasoning behind that is I like to tell the students that a courtroom is a room full of actors. You have a prosecutor, you have a defendant and a defense attorney, you have a judge and you have a jury. And all of those individuals play a role in that courtroom. And a lot of times if you have attorneys that are very good speakers, that are very convincing, they could have done it in the 70s, they could do it today. Because a lot of times, regardless of what the CSIs on TV show you, every crime doesn't produce DNA and blood and all that stuff and we can't really solve crimes in 30 minutes. Most criminals don't leave those things behind. They try to make sure it's not there. You do have some of those cases where you do have those things. So that makes it a little easier. But even today, if you're trying to make a conviction solely off of circumstantial evidence, a good show attorney would be able to pull it off just as they would have in the 70s. If they're a good defense attorney, then their client's walking. You know, even now, A lot of cases don't go to trial, so there's a lot of times they plea before they even make it to trial. But um, a lot of times now, like you said, the, the technology, the surveillance cameras, things like that, it makes it difficult to say you weren't there because some of those cameras, it's absolutely insane how detailed the security cameras are now. Um, compared to in the 80s where it was all pixelated and black and white and dark colored sweatshirt or something you couldn't tell if it was black or blue or brown or gray or now you could almost tell the brand of clothes that they had on <laughs> based on the, <laughs> the surveillance tapes so it makes the investigation process a little easier technology and things like that if you have those things great but for most cases like i said you know people aren't committing murders on the streets where there's surveillance. It's usually somewhere where there's no cameras and they know they're not going to get caught. The situation you described with everybody in the courtroom is an actor. You have all of these plea bargains and deals that are possible for you and your colleagues who are committed to serving the criminal justice system and being able to turn out graduates who have a deep and ethical understanding of the criminal justice system. How do you explain those kinds of elements, the sort of horse trading that goes on behind the scenes and whether someone gets out of a conviction because they just happen to have an amazing lawyer, not because they were actually innocent, things like that. How do you and your colleagues sort of grapple with those contradictions? When we're teaching, we have to tell them, you know, we know those things exist, But before 1966, this individual over here didn't even know he could have an attorney. 
we have these sentencing guidelines and somebody who committed the same crime in two different counties, it's one to five years, right? And you have one judge in one county who gives somebody one year and another judge in another county gives them five years and it's the same scenario of crime. So we have students ask us those things too. And we have to have that conversation about, well, there's a lot more factors in those scenarios than what you see when you're looking at paper. Judges have what we call pre-sentencing reports. They're like an investigative process that looks at that individual, how he was in the community, how he treated his family, what kind of job does he have, how many times has he been in trouble before, has he moved around a lot, has he been arrested a lot. A lot of detailed information on that individual goes into that judge's hands before he makes that sentencing determination. Not only does that come into play, but all of the details from the cases that may not have been presented in court, because a lot of times, especially if you're if you have a really gory crime scene, they won't show those photos in a courtroom because of respect for the victim or sometimes people get squeamish when they see things. But the judge gets to see all those things. So a lot of times I have to tell the students that what we may not see is fair in looking at it from an outsider's perspective. We still have to have faith in the system and feel that that judge looked at all of the particulars before he made that final determination and signed that order. And so that's how I like to present it in the classroom. The criminal justice system is not perfect. It is a constant evolving of new things and new trends and new ways to help individuals. And that's one of the things that I tell the students all the time. That's why it's so important to continue research. And it's so important to continue to work with all these other disciplines, because then it gives us ideas on how to make the criminal justice system more fair. Does it break sometimes? Absolutely. It absolutely does. So what we have to do is we have to see what mistakes we make and we fix those and then we come back better. And that's one of the things that I tell the students is you are the new future for the criminal justice field. Get involved, get research, get a bill and get somebody to sponsor it and get it on the floor. And that's the only way that we make change is to take action. There's ways you can do that, being a criminal justice professional and helping the system so that everybody feels when they walk out of a courtroom Everybody involved feels that what happened in there was fair to everybody. For generations, the American experiment has grown and thrived through the attitude described by Leanne Davidson. The conviction that each generation has a role to play in improving the system of laws that governs and unites us as a nation. And the understanding that discourse is always a better answer than disunion. As Abner himself says, our fathers found out that they could not manage the assassin and the thief when every man undertook to act for himself. So they got together and agreed upon a certain way to do these things. Now we have endorsed what they agreed to and promised to obey it. And I, for one, would like to keep my promise. For more episodes of Mysterious Mountains, be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app or visit wvhumanities.org for links to our podcast page and more content.
You can also follow the West Virginia Humanities Council on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. The West Virginia Humanities Council is the state affiliate of the National Endowment for the Humanities. The Council is an independent, nonpartisan nonprofit supported by the NEH, the state of West Virginia, contributions from the private sector, and people like you. Its statewide mission is to support a vigorous educational program in the humanities across West Virginia. This audio production of Mysterious Mountains is copyright 2021 by the West Virginia Humanities Council. Our theme song is Appalachian Impressions Movement 2, A Train Through Snowy Thurmond by Matthew Jackford, used with permission. <laughs>